living in Britain in 2007. Maybe you saw it. One of the statistics was this. The average Briton will know 1,700 people during the course of their lifetime. This was the definition. You needed to know their name or nickname. You needed to have contacted them within the last two years. And you could contact them again if you so wished. 1,700 people. That's an awful lot of people. And not surprisingly, maybe, because we know the relationships are so important to us. That's the way we're wired. It's the way God made us to be. But we're also aware that because we're wired that way, that our relationships can be to us a source of great blessing and great joy. But that when they go wrong, they can be the cause of our deepest hurts. And if we're relating to that many people, it's going to go wrong sometimes. Unintentionally or intentionally, accidentally or on purpose, people will hurt us and we will invariably hurt them. And these broken relationships can put a huge strain and stress on our lives. These broken relationships ooze those toxins and poisons that we've been talking about over this series that pollute the soul and pollute the person. How we respond is crucial to our well-being. It is true, of course, that your well-being is affected by the way that people treat you. But I have to say that your well-being is even more affected not by the way people treat you, but by the way you respond to the way that people treat you. In ordinary living, we get physical knocks and injuries, wounds, if you like, and we know what to do with them. If Joel comes in and he's grazed his knee, we know what to do. A bit of TLC, a bit of antiseptic cream, maybe a plaster in a few hours, if not a few minutes, he'll be right as rain and the healing process will have begun to work. If someone suffers a big wound, blood and bones sticking out, we know what to do. You dial 999, or if you've got your mobile. Oh, I hope I'm with Andrew if something goes wrong. 112 on your mobile, everybody. Nine, and we, we, or we take them to A&E, we do whatever it takes. We don't just sit around going, oh well, it happens. Wounds hurt, cuts bleed, bones break. We know what to do, we do something about it. But what when a relationship fails or causes us pain rather than pleasure? What of when a relationship becomes to us a burden and not a blessing? We're wounded. A wound far deeper and often more painful than the grazed knee or even the ones that would take us to A&E. Deep wounds. But when this happens and our inner souls get wounded, it seems to me we're nothing like as sure what to do. There's no 999. There's no antiseptic cream for wounds of the soul. And often a traumatized soul is overlooked in a way we wouldn't dream of overlooking something physical that was that wrong. And I guess we hope with our inner wounds give it time, we'll just move on, we'll get over it, it'll sort itself out. And only if it doesn't, only if that inner wound starts festering and spewing out its poison, might we contemplate doing something about it. 
But then, of course, it's a lot harder then. Most grazed knees heal quickly, but not if they're left uncared for, not if they're left uncleansed, not if they get infected and that infection is allowed to heal. And I guess essentially that's what so often we do with our inner wounds. We're not sure what to do with them, so we just kind of leave them and they fester a little and then they fester a little bit more and maybe someone else says something and it gets it all infected and it festers some more still and we become poisoned by them and the healing seems harder than ever. And most of our pain is caused by significant others. Maybe they never intended to hurt us, but they did nevertheless, although some will have intended to hurt us and that pain is very real. If a father or mother was less than they should have been, a sibling was dominant, a teacher poked fun or was always discouraging, a father demanding, if you were teased, humiliated, bullied, excluded, if your spouse was always putting you down, if, you, if, you, uh, if someone was unfaithful in some way to you, if a friend abused your trust, all of these things create wounds in us that heal. And there is no 999. And sometimes we never call anybody, we never ring anybody and say, I need some help with this. The wounds just get left. We don't know what to do with them. It, it hurts. I don't want to hurt, so I'll just push it down. And you might say to some of those things that I've just listed, well, it, that was ages ago. It's as good as forgotten. And if that's true for you, fantastic. But in my experience, the pain of those things can still be so very, very real. Even if the conscious memory of it is gone, the pain still lurks deep within inside us, just below the surface. And it's not too difficult for something in the present to trigger it off. Present overreactions are always, almost, the indication of wounds. Imagine if at school you got teased, week after week. What happened? You got angrier and angrier as your school years went on. But then you left school, and so the teasing stopped. What happened to the anger? It's just there, a reservoir of it, lurking somewhere in you. And then maybe many years later, that anger still just sloshing around somewhere. Someone comes along and teases you. Perhaps as an adult, you know they didn't mean you any harm. It was just a joke. But somehow it reached deep into that anger. And whoa, you overreacted to something that was just a little tease, adult to adult. Imagine that you're in a difficult marriage. Your spouse is not, only, is, is not only not meeting your emotional needs, but just seems to be trampling over you. You get angry and angry. Resentment, bitterness, hurt just grows. You don't like feeling like that. If you're a Christian, you know you shouldn't feel like that. So stuff it down, especially on a Sunday. Keep all those things that don't seem very godly out of the way. And then eventually, maybe tragically, the relationship comes to an end. You're no longer subject to that humiliation day after day. And you think, whoa, I'm free from it. No, you're not, because somewhere in there is this anger and this hurt and this resentment and bitterness. And look out for the next relationship, because they'll have to get to know you and your bitterness and your anger and your resentment. And it's my experience that it's primarily, and this is really hard for all of us to face about our lives. It is primarily our wrong, our bad reactions to others, however justified we feel those actions were. It's our wrong, our bad reactions that play a huge and sometimes the biggest part 
in screwing up our lives. If only I could blame it on all them others, and in a sense you can. But so often it's our reaction, however justified. And all of us here, if we knew your story, we would say, yeah, we understand, we would have done the same thing. We, we, we can't possibly judge you for reacting like that. Nevertheless, when our reactions are less than what God has made us to be, it screws us up. So something happened, often something quite small uh, sometimes, but it just caught us wrong, you know? Sometimes how little things can catch us off guard and hurt us and wound us. It made us angry and we resented it. And that wound with its anger and resentment perhaps never got treated. It festered a little bit. And so new things that happen get viewed through the grid, the lens of this anger that we already feel. And so that anger and resentment grows a little bit more. And it grows a little bit more. And so it continues. And countless times when I talk with people, it's really not the original incident now by a long way that's affecting them so deeply. It is the years of resentment and bitterness that have built and built and are now sometimes raging out of control beneath the surface of our lives. Our reaction so often, rather than the original hurt, become for us the most crippling things. Maybe Paul was right, finger right on the button. He said, guys, if you're going to walk in the light, which is what he's talking about, if you're going to walk the way, hey, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. So is there a different way? A way free from this build-up of toxic emotions. Can you see how they just build up, they just feed each other and they fester in our lives and they cause us increasing trouble. Yes. It's the way of letting go when people hurt you instead of holding on. It's the way of releasing somebody rather than clutching to them in revenge. It's the way of feasting rather than fuming, which is exactly what David talks about in his psalm. He says, Father God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. How can you possibly have a feast if your enemies are still around? Let me tell you, there is only one conceivable way you can have a feast when your enemies are still around, and that's if you have forgiven them. That's the only way. If you've not let them off the hook, there will be no party in your heart. If you've not let them go, you will still be fuming and you cannot possibly be feasting. The different way is the way of forgiveness. And you know what it's like when you've fallen out with someone, you're hurt and you're angry, you want to stamp and shout and sometimes you do. Do you feel like a party? Do you feel like going to that party when you've had a blazing row with your spouse? Hello? Good. For a moment I thought you weren't normal. You can't do it. They don't go together. Fuming and feasting do not mix. Are you ready for a feast after you've had a fight? No. You're pent up, stressed out, nauseous on the inside. But if by the grace of God, imagine a different way, if by the grace of God you can let it go, then you can feast says David in this psalm, even when your enemies are still around. A life of feasting is a life of forgiving. 
And maybe you think, if only that person, if only that situation would just clear off and get out of my life. Hey, that might never happen. But David says here, words from heaven, you can feast even when your enemies are still around. Thank you. Hallelujah. You can feast even when your enemies are still around. We know it's true, don't we, that forgiveness, unforgiveness and bitterness and anger just messes us up. And yet how easily we do it. How easily we do it. And we hold on to things when the other person has probably long forgotten them. Are we hurting them? Probably not. Are we hurting ourselves? Absolutely. And for Jesus it was so important, he went back to it over and over again. He says you've got to understand this forgiveness stuff. If you want your relationship with Father God to flow, you've got to understand this forgiveness stuff. If you're not letting people go, it messes with your insides. And it's a lesson that has to be learnt if we're to live in God's fullness. It's a truth to live by if we want to feast at his table. Joe puts it like this. Resentment kills a fool. Huh. Resentment kills. And he had enough to get cross about, didn't he? And envy slays the simple. David's got this understood. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to look at it together. Uh, perhaps you'd turn to it with me. Uh, get your Bibles open. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's uh, page 296. 296. And just while you're finding that, a couple of words about forgiveness. It's very easy for people to get the wrong end of the stick about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not acting like it never happened. It's not acting like it never happened. Forgiveness is not denying or reducing the magnitude or the seriousness of what has happened. It's certainly not condoning what has happened. Forgiveness is acknowledging the pain and the hurt. Forgiveness is saying, yes, this is what that has done. It's acknowledging the way we feel, but it's choosing no longer to cling to the anger and bitterness, but to let the person go and to let God be the judge of all things. So, David, here we go. David, you'll remember, is on the run. Remember, he's on the run from Saul, who was still the king. David was anointed to be king one day. Saul is uh, chasing him, wants to kill him. Remember how David stayed in the palace? Saul tried to kill him six times, and eventually David thought, I don't think Saul likes me, so he ran. And he ends up down into the desert region by the Dead Sea. And that's what we've been finding in these last couple of weeks. And he's there in that En Gedi region, verse 2. And Saul hears about where he is. Saul rushes off to find him. He gets nearer. But finds himself caught short. Poor chap. He stops his troops and goes into a cave to have a wee. You should have gone before you set off, Saul. Everyone knows the rules. Go to the toilet before you start your journey. But it seems that he didn't take that advice. And he came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and he thought, goodness gracious, thank heavens for that. And he went into the cave to relieve himself, and he doesn't realize that David and his men are already in the cave, well hidden back. Now this got me thinking. Picture the scene. Saul is leading his troops. We know that Saul has got a whole load of big, heavy armor. Can you remember when David was going to go and fight Goliath and Saul said, well, if you are going to go, you better take this armor. And David tried to put it on, it covered him and he couldn't walk and all that stuff. So Saul's got all this armor stuff on, he's leading his troops. Now, I've been to the Tower of London and I've seen all the different armor from all the different periods in history. Because you can if you go to the Tower of London. And there is one thing that every bit of armor, whatever period of history it is, has in common. No fly. 
That's true, isn't it? Have you seen any armor with a fly, a zip, or a button? No fly. So think about it. This is my deepest theological point for today. Think about it now. Saul's gone into the cave with all his armor on. He's got to get all this stuff off. He can't wait to get to camp. He stops at the cave, the Middle Eastern version of the little chef, and he's there, focused on what he has to do. He's busting. In he goes. Armor comes off, fumbling with his buttons, unable to think about anything else. And there unnoticed at the back of the cave is David and his men. Saul caught quite literally with his trousers down. His armor on the floor, distracted, defenseless, and all but a swift action of someone's knife, defeated. And in the back of the cave, all the hatred in David's men rose as they watched this man who had pursued them and hated them in front of them, defenseless, trained killers. All their hatred rose. Saul, who with pathological determination was trying to kill them. Saul, who had rejected David and sentenced him to this life on the run. Saul, who'd taken this shepherd boy prince, the one who'd saved the day against Goliath, the one who served faithfully and humbly in the royal court, who had taken him and turfed him out of the palace, taken away his home and his family and his future. Saul had given them and their leader nothing but grief, and they hated him. Look at what they say to David. They say, hey David, now's our chance. This is the day of the Lord. Isn't it funny how often people say this is God's moment when they're trying to justify something that's wrong. They say, hey, this is the Lord's day. The Lord has done this for you. Hello? (laughs) This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands. Go on, David. This is the moment, David. Get your dagger ready, David. Uh, Allow all that anger and bitterness and rage to pour out, David. This is your moment. Kill him now, David. Kill him breathing down the back of his neck. The Lord has given him to you. But David has none of it. David crept up unnoticed. Can you imagine as they're creeping up and he's got his knife ready, David? They're going, go on, David, go on. Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. You know, can imagine it. All right, it's just me. And David crept up unnoticed. And what did he do? He just cut off the corner of Saul's designer robe. Can you imagine how impressed the soldiers were with that? You what? You what? And they begin to talk about it. And afterwards, David says, man, I feel really bad in my spirit. My conscience is stricken because I've cut off his robe. What a contrast from his men. They would have thought for a second, not for a second about killing him. But David's conscience is gripped even about this robe. How did David give grace to someone who had only given him grief? How do we give grace to people that only give us grief? Some people seem to have mercy glands. They secrete forgiveness never harboring grudges, never reciting hurts. Others, most of us perhaps, find it hard to forgive our souls. We might forgive the one-time offender, the person that steals our parking space. Don't you hate that? The person that even snatches your purse. But what about those repeat offenders who day after day give you grief upon grief upon grief? Were that scoundrel that gives you grief every day to come into your cave, would you behave like David? Do you give grace to those who give you grief? And we learn from David how to do it. Firstly, let God show the way. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. 
And in verse 6, he says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. David's still talking about the robe. Never mind taking his life, his robe, not his throat. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. The Lord forbid. David's saying to his men, hey guys, this just is not God's way. Look at Saul, who has walked out on God and is leading this kingdom his way. Look at the grief Saul is causing. Hey, we're God's man. We're going God's way. And this is just not God's way. And through the Bible, we see God's way, don't we? The whole of the Old Testament pours out this, this long of God over and over again to forgive his people. People are willfully and stubbornly rebellious and God forgives them again and again. And then Jesus comes. Why? To seek and to save the lost. To give his life as a ransom for many. And then that lovely story about the paralytic man. You know, when the the guy was paralyzed and he couldn't walk and he had four mates and they picked him up on a stretcher and they took him to the house and they couldn't get in so they dug a hole in the roof. You'll have drawn pictures about it if you went to Sunday school. Remember that? And they lowered Jesus down into this house. Lower the man down into this house in front of Jesus. And Jesus kind of, well, let's have a bit of fun here. Let's, uh, let's play on some words here. Let's make some important points here. So he says to all the guys standing around that were proper religious people, hey, what's it easier for me to say? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. Now, he knew that they knew that nobody could forgive sins except God alone. So when he said, I can say your sins are forgiven, (gasps) blasphemy, kill him, stone him, take him out of the city, let's get rid of him. No one says that. And Jesus says, hey, whatever. I can tell this guy to get up, that'll be good, but I can do something better than that. I can say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Something of God's heart being revealed in Jesus. Something of God the Father saying, yeah, I love to make lame people walk, but even more fundamental, more life-changing, more important is that I can forgive his sins. And he can walk out of that door never to be the same again. Which is it easier to say? And then just at the end of his life, as if uh, perhaps they hadn't got the message, they're a bit daft or something, they're sticking nails into his wrist. Six inches, 12 inches, who knows what they were. But did they have antiseptic cream? I doubt it somehow. Had they been used for other people who'd been nailed to other crosses? Most probably. And as those nails go in, he says, hey, Father, Father, forgive them. Father, let them go. I'm not going to hold on to them. Don't you hold on to them. Let's give grace. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's the forgiving God, full of grace. The one who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. The one who is there in forgiveness for us. The one who gave us the message of forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. No ifs, no buts. Only God gives grace to those who give grief. And David saw that clearly. He said, the Lord forbid. The Lord forbid what you're suggesting. That's just not God's way. It's the Lord's way or no way. And that's not God's way. And again, it was his overwhelming focus on God that saved David, as we've been seeing time and time again. Notice, you know, what's filling his mind? The Lord forbid. The Lord's anointed. He is the anointed of the Lord. Who's uppermost, again, in David's mind? The Lord. 
Not only do we need to let God show the way, but we need to let God soak our view. He is so full of the Lord that it alters the way he sees Saul. He sees Saul differently because he sees God first. He saw Saul not as a hated enemy trying to kill him, but someone who belonged to the Lord, the Lord's anointed, someone loved and known by God. And in two chapters, because something similar happens in the next chapter, you can read about it when you get home, David again spares Saul's life. And again in these two chapters, six times, David refers to Saul in in the most uh, highfalutin, if you like, language. Honouring who Saul is because he belongs to God. Here is someone in God's image and I must respect him because he's in God's image. Yes, he might have hunted me down. Yes, he might be trying to kill me. But that doesn't take away the fact this Saul belongs to God. And he refused to see his his grief giver as anyone other than a child of God. David filtered his view of Saul through the grid of heaven. I have to say to you, if you're trying to forgive someone, you will not do it if you keep looking at them. Filter your view through the grid of heaven. Ask God to show you his way, to soak your view. That the person that you're struggling with, they belong to God. God loves them. God, they're they're in his image, however marred. And thirdly, let God settle the score. This is a really important principle. You see, sometimes, most of the time, all of the time, we think that when people do wrong to us, it's against us, don't we? You hurt me. Let's be absolutely clear that far more important and far more fundamentally, when someone does something wrong against me, they've done something wrong against God. And the same is true of you. And far more important than the wrong against me is the wrong that they have done against him. And that's what David understands here. They're out of the cave and this conversation is continuing. Saul's gone out of the cave into the distance and David's come out of the cave saying, woo we were in here, we were watching, we knew what you were doing. And, and Saul's kind of taken aback in the distance and, and this conversation breaks out. And David says to Saul, shouting across, some urge me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed, full of the Lord's view. So he saw, the Lord, saw Saul in this totally different way and because of that, he was able to let God settle the score. Here it comes. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me but my hand will not touch you. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. What an attitude. Whatever wrong you have done, Saul, even though it was against me, I know that above all it was against God. And because it was far more against God than it will ever be against me, I'm going to leave God to sort that one out. Okay with you, Saul? I'm not going to get cross with you, Saul. I'm not going to give you a whipping. I'm not going to chase you down this valley and and get your guts for garters. Hey, it was against God more than me. I'm just going to leave it up to God, okay? Imagine the power in our relationships if we decided that we would not take it into our own hands, that we would not take revenge, not even in our spirits, that we would not harbour vengeful attitudes, which is exactly what feeds our anger and bitterness. 
If only we were able to say, hey, you've done something, maybe you have, and that wrong, it looked like it was against me, but I know really that any wrong you do, it's much more about you and God than it'll ever be about me. So I'm not going to get mad with you, even though you were getting cross with me, even though you hurt me. I'm just going to leave it to God, okay? I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. And so maybe Ecclesiastes is absolutely right. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. But we see, feel so important when we're angry, don't we? Hey, we're trumpeting the cause. Someone has hurt me, and I'm going to tell them, and I'm going to show them. We feel so important, so justified. Do you wouldn't believe what they did to me, and I'm so angry. And someone goes, yeah, golly, they did that to me, I'd be angry too. And we're all on our high horse, and the Word of God says, whoa. Anger lives in the lap of fools. Foolish because it isn't God's way. Foolish because it's stupid in the head, isn't it? An eye for an eye becomes a neck for a neck. Becomes a job for a job. Becomes a reputation for a reputation. Who will stop that? Who will stop that? Only when someone committed to God's way says, this is not my right or my place. I must deal with my wrong. But other people's wrong, even if it was against me, is not my problem because ultimately it's against God and God is big enough to sort that out. I'll leave it with him. That's what Jesus did. He said, all this stuff that's coming to me, really it's coming against God. I'll leave my Father to sort this out. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so Paul almost pleads to the Christians in Rome. He says, guys, it's like this. Do not take revenge. For goodness sake, in that moment when anger and bitterness could begin to mess you up on the inside, just leave room for God. It's God's deal anyway. It was against him more than it's ever be against you. It offended him far more than it will ever offend you. Don't take revenge. Revenge doesn't work, does it? You tried it? No? No, go on. Yeah, you once in a while. Once in a while, you gave it a go. Always backfires. What does it do? It just keeps the hurt alive, doesn't it? When you retaliate, it adds to the pain. The, the pain escalates. There's only one way you'll ever get relief. There's only one way you'll walk free. That's letting go of forgiveness. Letting God take it, not holding on. Giving it to God to settle it up. You can feast instead of fume, even with your enemies still around. Notice the power. Notice the power of what David did. Its effectiveness was far greater than the sword or spear will ever be. When Saul realized what had happened, it found a way right to his heart. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Saul, the hard man so in control, so justified in his anger and jealousy towards David, so going to sort that young uh, whippersnapper out, so in control, and he wept aloud. Why? Because David fought back. No, because David said, Saul, I'm just letting you go. I'm going to give you grace where you have given me grief. And it touched his heart. And then in verse 17, Saul goes, you're more righteous than I. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. By verse 19, Saul is actually blessing David. And by verse 20, uh, the boy he was trying to kill just a few moments earlier, Saul is celebrating him to be the next king. 
when we're hurt, we fuss and we fume, we shout and we slap, I'll show them, but it never does. This drives a bigger wedge between us. Everyone becomes more entrenched, hearts become harder. And as we take control of the situation, we leave God outside. Forgive us. Let's go. Let's go. Make room for God. And there really can be a table in the presence of our enemies. There really can be feasting through forgiveness instead of fuming. So we let God settle the score. And did he settle the score? David said, well, I'm just going to leave, leave you to God. Within a few chapters, Saul was dead and David was beginning the greatest kingly reign Israel would ever see. And then as we go back to Psalm 23, we see that David has discovered there's a bit more from God in all of this, and very quickly, in just two minutes, fourthly, let God soothe our spirit. You anoint my head with oil. Shepherds used oil for their sheep. Sheep hate flies, particularly flies. In hot uh, uh, Middle Eastern countries, flies are a real problem to the sheep. Sheep haven't got tails and hooves to get rid of the flies. They're reliant on the shepherd. And the shepherd would anoint a sheep's head with oil, a mixture of, uh, of sulfur and uh, olive oil as a cleansing, soothing, healing balm for the sheep. Or sometimes they would take the oil and they would create an ointment out of it and place it on the sheep's eyes to soothe their sore eyes from the heat of the day and the, 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 the flies that kept penetrating that space. What's David saying here? God will anoint your head with oil. And often the pain is so tight and the wounds so deep that forgiveness seems impossible. And right now, maybe you're probably right, but as Jesus comes with his anointing oil, his healing power, soothing, cleansing, healing, forgiving, then forgiveness that we never thought was possible can begin to flow. He heals the broken hearted and binds up their wounds. Do you believe that about the broken part of your life? The broken part of your heart? Do you believe that about the broken part of your heart? And this really is not meant to be flippant. But if you are really serious about God doing a work in you, and if you are willing to give him access to that most painful part of your life that you've never given anybody else access to, you don't even access it yourself. The prayer, oh God, help me, will be enough to unleash the cleansing from heaven. And finally, let God satisfy our needs. My cup overflows. In the Middle East, in the desert, water and wine is a precious commodity. So the idea of a cup overflowing is a kind of oxymoron. You wouldn't possibly waste wine and water in the desert unless you just had so much of it. My cup overflows. In these desert places, my cup overflows. My enemies are still there, my cup overflows. What might our cup overflow with? It might overflow with hope, the Bible promises us. It might overflow with love, the Bible promises us. It might overflow with joy, the, promise, the Bible promises us. And so we might go on. The very things that broken relationships crush, hope and love and joy, will be to you in greater measure as you feast on God's table through forgiveness and receive his healing touch. There's a custom in the Middle East that 
if, uh, if you're, you're traveling and you're welcomed in by a stranger, and out in desert places, strangers help strangers. If you're welcomed in, they will pour wine or water into your cup and you can drink. And as you drink, they will pour more wine or water into your cup. And for as long as they kept pouring the wine and water into your cup, it was a sign to you that you were welcome, that you could stay. There would maybe come a day when they wouldn't fill that cup and it was a gentle way of saying, I think it's time to move on now. It's been great having you here, but off you go. And then occasionally, occasionally a host would get the wine or the water and pour it into the cup, but not stop and let it overflow. It was a sign you could stay as long as you liked. You were welcome here. You were special. God says... My cup, your cup, overflows. Hallelujah. Let's pray.